0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from
1: Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you won't hear anywhere else. This week, I had the chance to sit down with Hans Morris. He's the managing partner of Nika Partners. He's had a wide-ranging career across the world of finance, started on Wall Street. He was the president of Visa, hung out a shingle, really when fintech wasn't even a thing. Here's that conversation. So Hans Morris, Managing Partner of Nica Partners, let's talk about the news. Your third fund uh, completed your biggest so far. Why now? And a pretty substantial slug of money.
0: Yeah, well, I think to me it's a continuation of what we started five years ago. And so we started smaller. It was, uh, it was hard to raise money in <laughs> a fund. But we had a very specific idea, which was we're just going to focus on fintech. And I think – the, the space we occupy is we 're good at at helping entrepreneurs figure out the financial system, which is quite daunting. You have a great idea but how much capital will take, what regulatory process how, how do you plug into that system? so we found that um, entrepreneurs value that yeah. and 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 I think that also other other venture firms value it. So so many cases we have some great firms bring us in help and because I think we can we can help a company be more successful. And since then obviously fintech has gone from a tiny little portion of the venture community to a big portion right now. And we can talk more about this, but I think you know when I started I actually wrote a blog post in 2014 and there were a few hundred fintech companies. And if you went back even 10 years earlier, probably a dozen that got VC funding. And now we just did this rough calculation because I don't know if you could really count. We we estimate about 15,000 fintech firms have gotten funding around the world.
1: What was the catalyst to to give it
0: that sort of acceleration? Well, a big part of it, I think, is technology changed. And what's important, what were the big drivers? I think that the – Certainly the fact that you could say, all right, your phone is now the supercomputer. It's in your pocket. You don't have to have that inside the bank mm-hmm. was a very big change that took place. And similarly, the the advent of the cloud and AWS suddenly dramatically cut down the infrastructure requirements. It wouldn't cost tens of millions of dollars of investment to get to scale. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could do it by the drink. I think the financial crisis had a big impact because really all the incumbent companies, every bank and insurance company – they had to cut out all their, you know, idea labs and innovation groups. All that got eliminated. And all the focus was on what was really a major global re-regulation cycle. Yeah. So analogous to what happened after the after the 1930s. And this happens, you know, in, in waves, I think. And so they were just dealing with that. Meanwhile, you had these big changes in technology. And then a key thing, and I, I think this is something that isn't as well understood. And I think it's still an open question. So I'm not sure – i full i can 't predict the answer on this, but I think the nature of trust has changed because if you think about this issue of if like would you give some app on the internet your login credentials to your bank account right no nope. no tens of millions of people do just that yeah and uh and it used to be that you would it would take tremendous infrastructure to build that brand to be trusted, and I think that the the Expectation now that consumers and businesses have is of a we call it like a tech curation, like an experience that you expect. And if you don't get that, and you're entering the same password, or you're answering stupid questions, or it's too frustrating, or it's redundant, you that reduces your trust. Yeah. And yet, that experience characterizes many of the legacy companies, and they're trying to change all that. But it's hard. And meanwhile, companies come up with these fantastic experiences. You're onboarded in 30 seconds, and you all things are very simple. So that builds trust, which would have taken a decade to do 20 years ago.
1: So how do you invest against that? How do you understand this ecosystem that's growing so fast as you demonstrated with those figures? How do you pick the winners? How do you even find the right companies, especially at a nascent stage, which is where you want to get them?
0: Yeah. So, like, I I wouldn't say – we we make a lot of mistakes. I I tell people that, you know, we have the best – Anti portfolio and anti portfolio is is the is the, the, the companies you didn't invest yeah. in, and I think we have the best, the best in the business because we have like, Robinhood and Carta and Platt and Marquetta right. and uh, Chime and uh, lots of great companies that we didn't invest in, right. so we miss it that a you lot. saw and passed. We passed, yeah. yeah, And sometimes we passed because we thought what they were trying to do. We saw. I think I think there's actually a, a, a valid issue that sometimes if you know too much about a subject. You might see the impediments to success, uh, whereas if you don't know very much about it, uh, you just make a bet on the people yeah. and figure, it, and they'll figure it out. Which, so, uh, and I think that did in fact characterize our, you know, mistake that we made. And sometimes we also said, oh, it's too expensive. Right. Know, the value should be fifty million instead of you know seventy, and so we passed. Now the company's worth ten billion or something. Yeah. And uh, so we definitely make a lot of mistakes. But what we I think we start with often start with a premise about what we're looking for. So there's lots of problems in the financial system. And and we could pick, you know, if we go back to 2014 for example, we were very focused on the what a mess the mortgage business was. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the problems in mortgage technology is the systems are all very old and they were not also, they weren't built by technologists. They were, you know, the people running mortgage companies were often sometimes bankers, but often salespeople, you know, countrywide run by a salesman. Yeah. And so nothing new. There was no real tech innovation at all in the generation in mortgage. But we also felt that the most success there's a lot of uh a lot of problems in being a mortgage company is regulated, it requires capital, and it also um there's a lot of volatility in originations because of prepayments. So we said, we don't want to invest in a mortgage company. We really want to invest in an enterprise software company that's addressing this. So who's the top Silicon Valley team focused on mm-hmm. this? And we found a group of entrepreneurs that had, had been a Palantir that had done the mortgage project, a Palantir that they did for J.P. Morgan and Bank of America. And they came away saying, hey, this place is – this is a this is nuts how yeah. this whole thing works. We could definitely build this better. And that's Blend. So that's a, the that's a company we invested in. So we were looking. We looked at all kinds of companies and we said, this is, this is the team. Right. And um, that's become now a you know, very big company. And uh, they, they have uh, – um, they just raised money from General Atlantic, and Tomasic right. at close to a billion dollars. And they're really becoming, I think, not just the enterprise solution for mortgage origination, for digital mortgage origination, right. but really for um, all kinds of, of, of loan originations and account originations
1: tell me about the appetite from the limited partner perspective from the pensions the endowments the sovereign funds the family offices growing what was your experience raising money this time versus the previous two funds
0: you know it's interesting on that point because we didn't have and we, we still don't have we've only had one partial exit and we got another one coming but the but we don't have a you know 20 year track record yeah. showing how great we are in all these different uh, environments so i'd say Many of the endowments and, and pension funds who looked at us, we got good feedback, but they passed. Uh, and so really, our core investors are, in many cases, we have some insurance companies who do have some sovereign wealth funds uh, and or one sovereign wealth fund. Um, but in many cases, they're investing with us because we have a good, I think they like our business model a mm-hmm. lot, Like our like our position in the market. And we have very good, I think we have very good portfolio construction. So you can be optimistic about future exits and returns. But a lot of them invested with us because they want the lens on the future of right. fintech. Right. And I think what, what is uh, maybe not unique about us because there's other really good investors in this space too, but we now get about 25 inbound companies a week, about half of which are very good yeah. references, you know, from a, from a founder we know or from another top-tier VC investor. And so we have just tremendous deal flow and yeah, we turn, we we miss things, as I said. And but we often it's rare that we didn't see it. Yeah. And so the fact that we uh, and we we spend a lot of uh of our effort in engaging our LPs. We want them to know what we're looking at, why we're looking at it. So we actually have a monthly call where we talk about that and what Interesting. are some of the themes. We have two meetings a year, not one. So a lot of people I would say perhaps validly look at the LP meeting as sort of a pain and they don't look forward to it. We I actually really like it. We have a very good Kind of rapport and engagement with them we're right trying to do that right,
1: so let's go back a little ways Tell me about the initial idea because it's interesting to look at your background you know you were a banker you worked in a company you Mm -hmm. were the president of visa Mm -hmm. i mean you obviously saw this technology and financial services from a very high level at one of the most important companies in the world and then you sort of switched over to be more of an investor walk me through that evolution
0: well when i started i was a banker and i I started at the old smith barney actually so then uh, sandy weill bought that in 1988 and there was a one of the things that really had big impact on me there was a Emergence of talent. There are a lot of talented people there already, but the but the you had Sandy Wilde up at Jamie Diamond was the twenty nine year old CFO. Yeah. Frank Bisignano worked in operations at the beginning; didn't even run operations. Uh, Jay Fishman, a fantastic person, became chairman of Travelers. Um, Charlie Scharf, uh, who now runs Bank in New York, yeah. was the head of planning and analysis working for Jamie. Uh, so it was a remarkable talent factory, and you learned how to manage. And I uh, I was a banker, but I ended up being made head of the group, the financial institutions group, when I was 29. So that, and and I we ended up focusing. It wasn't called fintech, but we focused on this thesis, which I've, which still is my thesis, should be your thesis, which yeah. is. Declining information. Most of the profit pools in financial services are based upon a competitive advantage of information. Right. So, if you're trading bonds, or you're investing money, or you're insuring lives, uh, or you're making loans, if you don't have a competitive advantage, if there's perfect information, there's no margin. Right. Yeah. So, margin goes away, and so then the the nature of your relationship instead of. The profit pool coming from that competitive advantage. The competitive advantage, in some cases, is a byproduct of that information. So the data coming out of it might be used in another way. Google would be an example of that, like right. they get all the search data. They don't sell search data. They sell advertising based on search data. Yes. So there's, so there's a derivative of the data can be monetized. But um, also, it could be just in in terms of organizing choices and and statementing or or. Uh, uh, Um, holding assets or or managing decisions to help people make good decisions. So that's how financial services change. We thought back in the late 80s, I had this thesis, okay, this is uh, I call it the holy war. Information is dramatically changing each of these things. We want to back the winners. So we Backed Capital One and we took Capital One public. We did all, all kinds of MA work and investment bank work with First Data. We saw the one of my colleagues actually saw this idea that the ATM networks could become payment networks yeah. and debit networks. And so we pretty much sold all those companies. We privatized NASDAQ. We um, represented MasterCard on a lot of transactions, did the IPO of PayPal. So that was always my. Interest, I'd right. say, and then I got into management jobs, and so I didn't, I wasn't doing banking. So for about seven years, I was in this very complicated place because we mer- we bought Solomon Brothers, we merged with City, and then uh, I became the chief operating officer for the investment bank, which was like you know some disaster happening every day, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, and then uh, and then I became CFO for the institutional part of City, and then a big. Big thing, huge impact on me is I got uh, – Frank Bizzignato became the head of the transaction services business. And so, they, so Tech and Ops, which he had been running, started reporting to me. And I thought I knew a lot about this because I've been doing all financial services technology for two decades. And what I realized, I had no idea how complicated it was. Yeah. And if someone says like, okay, convert, do a, a conversion of this system to some other system – how does that actually work? I didn't know. This is the like actual anybody.
1: guts of the yeah, bank got essentially. Yeah, the guts.
0: thousands of systems. Figure out what are going to be the winning systems in in the global in the global bank and create a decision uh method to assess and 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 make choices. And so that definitely affected me. Yeah. So I think that when I meet with companies now, I that's sitting there like how does it actually work? Right. And why is this so hard? And I think uh, I have a very deep appreciation for that. For Mm -hmm. five years, I was doing that. And then I got the call when Visa was privatizing. And, 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 you know, I really – I remember I was telling my wife about it because she's saying, oh, move to California and leave Wall Street and everything. And I said, you know – I mean, I didn't predict. I I left Wall Street in June 2007. So that might be my epitaph will be (laughs) – Wow. Predicted the – I did not predict the financial crisis. But I did predict. I said, you know what? this is the market leader almost two-thirds market share in electronic payments globally yeah and I visa. Said, visa I said that's just a winner I, yeah. don't, I, it, I just I got you know I think we should do it and it was really a great decision for me because even though I didn't get the CEO job but I I learned a lot mm-hmm. uh, and I um, you know I'm proud of what what I did there and what what the company uh, did and it also plugged me into San Francisco which I really didn't Get And when NICA, as you pointed out uh, before when we were talking, NICA stands for New York, California. And the idea when I formed it was that Wall Street didn't really understand Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley didn't understand the financial system. So right. if we could bridge these two things, that would be valuable. It would be helpful to the entrepreneurs, but it would also be helpful to the other investors. And so that came from living there. If I right. hadn't lived there, I wouldn't have known that in the same way. So then also after, so after Visa, um, I didn't get the CEO job and I went to General Atlantic. And and I, I learned a lot there too. I, I I must say, I thought I knew a lot about investing right. and um, and they have a, uh, you know, a, a remarkable culture and incredible track record. And and uh, so I learned a lot about investing. Yeah. And, and the issue though, for me was that they, they tend to invest later in and, you know, they were at that point looking to invest, let's say a hundred or $200 million into a company or $400 million into a company. And, I felt that given these changes that were quite dramatic and evident in financial services that we needed to, to invest earlier and that wasn't their model. So um, so anyway, that's when I, st- I said, well, I'm going to go start my own right. company and give it a shot. And so how
1: do you put together a team for something like that? What are you looking for and where do you find the folks that ultimately form the core? Because as you say – you grew up in some very distinct cultures in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, the name checking you did about, you know, working at Smith Barney back in the day. I mean, you're talking about some of the leaders of modern finance at this point. So what do you take from that? What do you take from Visa and especially this New York, California thing to blend all of those ethos?
0: Well, you know, we tried to make it different from the beginning and actually I'll send it to you if you want. I have a I have a one pager I put together about what in in December or November 2013 what are we trying to do. Yeah. And it actually reads pretty well. When I start we do a, a team offsite every quarter. I always start with this. And because uh one thing we said is uh what do the companies need? And what I felt is if we assemble a group of very respected investors and partners, that could be a unique model like that could really create value, so we started this idea, which we now call our LPAs, our limited partner advisors mm-hmm. and i don 't think anyone us had ever done this before, so that was our source of capital we're individuals who are experts, yeah. so in fact we we combined we, we brought together that expertise and and uh, and made a network to communicate that expertise to companies right, but that was our capital base we were all these people right, and uh, some really Amazing people yeah. well, and and on that point, what's so interesting is
1: that historically, as much as private equity firms talk about you know broadly defined talk about you know these are our partners and things like that, they are at some to some extent at arm's length, right? There's not necessarily the intimate relationship that that you're describing or what it sounds like you're yeah. describing
0: well, actually, this was a pretty radical idea. Our first investment committee was formed. With me, plus these five other people that we called our investment partners, the IPs. But they weren't full-time. They didn't work in the GP. But the the group was uh, Brian Finn, who had been the president of Credit Suisse, uh, Charlie Songhurst, who had been head of strategy at Microsoft and very plugged in in Silicon Valley, Osama Badir, who built the Google Wallet and had been at PayPal and then started a company called Point, Max Levchin, who co-founded PayPal, founded a company called Affirm. Um, and then Tom Miglis who I who I knew from Solomon Brothers where he had been the CIO but then he had been the CIO at Citadel for 18 years. Yeah. So it was intentionally if you think about that split there's a bunch of it's kind of New York and California. Yeah. That was the idea actually. And um and then we added we added we now have I think 55 LPAs and it includes every you know you could take that group but uh I don't know uh larry summers or or uh or two Star ran the risk practice at McKinsey or uh Judd Linville ran glo- global cards at at city Group yeah. or Tim ran c f t c and uh of c f t c so it's it's an uh, amazing group, and as I say someone is a phone call away from the truth right right and uh and, and and you know so you can bring up a complex obscure topic. Like how would regulators react to this or how would – or what should a company do in this circumstance? Or what exactly is the problem in um, OTC clearing or you know, equity derivatives? Someone will be able to yeah. analyze that problem with precision. Yeah. And then I think one of the most important things is, is I call it precision introduction. So it's one thing to do like an email intro. If you could say this is the person that owns the, the decision that's going right. to be made. Right, right. That's very valuable to a company, and that could
1: save me a year all right before I let you go what's the one biggest idea you've heard about fintech that sort of knocked you back in terms of a theory that is ultimately investable
0: the one idea that knocked me back there's you know I mean there it's it's rare that we, you see a truly unique idea. If you're getting mm-hmm. 25 a week, many yeah. of them are variations of things we've sure. seen before. I think Propel, that's a really, that was a really unique idea. And when um, the entrepreneur uh, came out of Facebook, Jimmy Chen, and he, he wanted to create an app to help people who are on food stamps manage their lives better. So it basically became an app that helps you sort out what your benefits are and it becomes a Regular, almost daily form of interaction for about three million people. Wow! And then he wants to say we're going to help that group navigate the financial system. So they're definitely people who have, you know, some setback in life. But how can he? Can we give them a debit card that is in their interest? And then what are the other things that we could offer in terms of financial services that are valuable to right. them? So that's a really. Great idea. That's Impressive CEO. Idea. And uh, we love working with him.
1: That was Hans Morris, managing partner of NICA Partners, a longtime investor and banker in the world of money. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio. That's live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg.